Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and yes, we are back in an actual pub-like environment. It's actually Artisanal Burger Company of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, rated the number one burger place in Connecticut. I think some people in New Haven have a problem with that, but we don't care what people in New Haven think. <laughs> anyway, um, we've had uh, plenty of beer because we've already done a show, and you probably can tell by my insouciance at this point. <laughs> But uh, we are going to get into some fun stuff. My name is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a bunch of stuff, and I'm terribly controversial. There are a lot of people who hate my guts out there, but there are other people who actually like me. Anyway, that's enough about me. I've got a book on Bombadil. That's <laughs> anyway, you can probably tell that I'm into my third beer. <laughs> Glenn, tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. And no one hates you, Glenn. No one. Well, you are I, the lovable, cuddly historian. Well, actually, I once, my first mentor as a professor told me that if I don't have some students who absolutely hate me, I'm probably not teaching them anything worthwhile. Well, I'm sure then you have acquired a number of people who hate your guts because you're a great teacher. Anyway, so and Tom. Chris is drunk. <laughs> my only friends are here at the table. <laughs> I just evoke <laughs> hatred everywhere I go. And it's just because I'm so loving. <laughs> That'll do it to you every time. That'll do it. Um, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. Okay, Tom, it's your day. You are the man in the spotlight. Um, you are the man of the moment. Actually, if I may interrupt before yeah, we get yeah. there. We did a poll on... Uh, slogans for the podcast T-shirt. Yeah, what's the results? And the what one was the one that we used the first time around. So we're going to hmm. stick with that. I may put in the number two, um, as well as a second option. But right now we're going to stick with acts. Oh, nice, nice. Now hopefully we'll have new T-shirts and lots of glasses ready for us when we go to Nashville, when we were at the Fight Left East conference there at, in Nashville, and it's going to be a great, great event. Uh, I believe that we got Vody Bakum mm-hmm. coming there to, the, to the event. I know we got uh, Doug Tanapple is going to be there. And then, you know, we're going to be there. Yep. So what more do you need? <laughs> and I even think that George Gilder is like someone that might, might, might be there. Yeah, they're, they're trying to get Gilder. I don't know if they've, they actually nailed him down yet. That would be awesome. And I got a host of friends coming, which I do actually have more friends than are just at the table. But you'll get to <laughs> meet some of them. So Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, if everything works out the way we uh, think it will, we're going to have an actual uh, time on stage recording a live podcast with our friend George Grant. That's my understanding. And uh, so, and they're telling us that we're going to have at least 500 to 1,000 people there just to see us do what we do here at Artisanal Burger for free when we're here. It's amazing. Anyway, enough of that. So, Tom, Tom, what are we talking about today? Okay, well, I'm returning to what I talked about last time, and this is sort of a part two to that. Um, this is kind of meaning and history. Um, but rather than just kind of keep it at that level of title, maybe kind of um, entering into it from the angle of, okay, why should I care about this topic? Or what significance does this kind of um, topic have for me to keep listening to the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we love to bring people along. We like to. So, um, 
you know, I was asked a question a while back um, about, you know, why is it that, you know, we oftentimes in, in evangelical churches, Reformed churches, committed to Scripture, um, have still found that so many of our churches have just got caught and swept up in different fashions and trends, um, almost without any resistance, and they've almost seen what they grew up in as almost an enemy rather than, than a true exhibition or a carrier, imperfect as it is, a carrier of, of true Christianity. Um, why is it that what could be seen as essentially Christian at one moment become anti-Christian or seen as an enemy by Christians at another moment? Why this fluidity of identity of Christianity? Um, what, why it, isn't this very different than a, you know, a truth, a deposit once and for all given to the saints? Something that has some kind of identifiable continuity from age to age, whatever the different interruptions and distortions and, and the like. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people are asking this question, um, how, do I, how do I, you know, get a hold of, you know, the nature of, you know, cr- true Christianity? Right. Um, and, and so I'm trying to probe different areas of, of you know, um, of how we do that, but I'm also looking at how in the world we came to a point where we, Christianity's as we may have grown up in it, has become strange. Right. Um, a problem. Um, I mean, you, you've noticed, you've talked about certain things, you're confronting in, in, within denomination. Right. And, uh, and, of course, Glenn is doing seminars and talks all the time on these challenges that the church is facing. The fact that the church is facing them tells us... Tells that, us a lot, doesn't it? Tells us a lot. And so, um, and so we've been over the different episodes covering different worldviews and their impact. But one of the things I've been trying to do is just look at this notion of history, um, the meaning of history. I mean, what is history? Um, you know, how should we understand it? You know, it is at this level, the historical, where so many things that we understand as being Christian... Um, are given a certain kind of character that if we understand history the wrong way, then we're going to, of course, understand Christianity in a different way. What do I mean by that? Well, if Christianity, for example, has a certain understanding of history, that there are events, for example, that are determinative and unrepeatable, <laughs> and that these take on a certain level of meaning that become the measure of history. Now, uh, let's stop here and just think about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because what you just said is tremendously significant. Yes. And um, I think a lot of folks, uh, when they think of history, they say, well, it's just stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mark Twain, history is just one damn thing after another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very poetic of Mark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, one of the things that I, mer- I, I noted maybe back in the 90s was we, we saw in the academy a departure from Anno Domini, A.D. to C.E., common era. Yes. Common to whom? I mean, what, what are we talking about with that? But, and then I saw a lot of um, what I thought, to that point anyway, were solid conservative Christian scholars just jump on the bandwagon, jettison A.D., and... In other words, they're rejecting the lordship of Christ over history. Yes. Yeah. 
And it's interesting you mentioned that because it shows even up to this day where, where we still will sometimes, even BCE and ACE some, somewhat parallel, they're kind of trying to be secular reinterpretations of the common era, but Christ still is the pivotal point. Um, and, and that took a long time to develop. From what I understand, Glenn, that, that the understanding of BC and AC, although Christ became, once Christ enters into the bloodstream, if you will, of civilization, um, he starts immediately for Christians to become the definitive mark point of, of history. But it takes almost 1,800 years for BC and, uh, and, and AD to become understood not just as um, marking point from Christ to the future, but also marking Christ as the center point from the past. Um, originally, from what I've been reading, uh, Coleman, um, earlier Christians tended to, they, they tended to do this, but in the years that followed, creation became the kind of, they, they marked things first from creation to Christ, then from Christ to, to his second coming, whereas this shift started to become more theological where Christ was the center of, of the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega. So it's interesting. That, You're saying that happened in the 18th century? That's what I was reading, that they became, it became definitive then, that shift right. from creation to Christ, Christ to new create, ultimate new creation, right. to Christ being both significant for, 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 for in both, both directions both right. directions right. yeah it that in some ways parallels what you see in terms of dating um, the way the way things get dated up until something fairly recently mm -hmm. you know in terms of larger history through the Middle Ages um, dates were determined primarily by regnal dates of kings huh. okay. so in the third year of King Henry the second this sure. happened yeah we see that in the Old Testament yeah, and so that that was the, that was the common way of doing it. You find a a starting point, and you just count forward from there. So, creation to Christ w would make sense under those those circumstances. Right. I can see where it would raise massive problems if you can't if you're not really sure of the date of creation, for example. That could pose an well, issue. Well, that's an interesting thought. Maybe that's when, why this development occurs. Development, yeah. And 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 so, um, and one of the things I mean, he he also mentions, Coleman mentions, a uh, 525 uh, A.D. Uh, the Roman abbot Dionysius Exigus, I guess Exigus, Exigus, um, who was um, noted, I think, for um, marking the the earlier um, understanding of the birth of Christ as from then on understood the that as the years of the Lord. I mean, that's how they, they kind of represent it. Um, and that was introduced in 525, and then it was up to the 18th century when that you had this little shift come. Um, but nevertheless, from the, and, and uh, Coleman's argument is that shift was more consistent with the way the church understood it in, in, in the New Testament and the, and the earliest days as well. So he, he didn't see this as kind of uh, um, something that was moving away from the Christian understanding, but actually a more intense reading of it. But I mean, it's, it's just a historical point, but whatever, whatever the point is, Christ becomes the definitive center and meaning of both um, creation and the, the, the culmination of creation and its purposes. Christ yeah. is the center. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a New Testament doctrine. Yeah, that's right. And it's not only that he's the center, it points to a broader conception of history that sees it as teleological. That's right, that's right. And that idea that history points, history is going in a direction that there is a point that it is aiming toward um, is absolutely fundamental to a biblical understanding of time. 
uh, but it's something that you also don't see in other ancient cultures. Um, in the modern world, has got all kinds of different variations on that. But that system of dating really points out, as you say, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. That's right. He's the point to which everything in, in the, the Old Testament or the, the B.C. era, everything pointed toward him. Everything flows from him now and everything will be consummated in him in the end. That's right. That's right. And, and Coleman hits this nose here. He said, the word of God, the Logos, is God in his revelatory action. Nowhere is God's action more concretely revealed than in history, which, to speak theologically, presents in its innermost nature the revelation of God to men. He's talking about Christ becoming flesh. And he said here, his logos once entered so completely into history that his unique interests can be designated by dates, which can be can every other historical event, the Emperor of Augustus, Luke 2.1, under the Emperor Tiberius, Luke 3.1. The same word of God who proclaims himself as the creative action and will proclaims himself at the end as a new creation become flesh in Christ. So here is, here is the eternal um, one who is, if not the, the meaning source of everything created, entering in to history as bringing about that, that full meaning center into the historical plane. It's something we now have access to in Christ. And so even though we have it only as a taste, we have a real taste of the full meaning of history by being united to Christ. Nice, nice. So this all means, of course, that we know something that people don't know. We have a set of riches that other people don't have. Right, right. And this is why, as we mentioned in the last show we did, uh, De Lubeck's notion, Christianity is not one of the great things of history. History is one of the great things of Christianity. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And this should be the source of our confidence. Yeah. Uh, our confidence should not be based on how relevant we are or how likable we are yeah. or even how sophisticated we are or how you know, well, we pre present our our thoughts to the world. That's right. Uh, our confidence should be based in the Lord of History, Jesus Christ. Christ. Yep. And it, oftentimes we we present that in an evangelical faction that you know that that rightfully calls people to know Christ and to to have a relationship with Christ. Um, what we oftentimes don't promote is that. In so doing this, you are actually being connected into the eternal source of all things. You are actually brought to yourself in a way because in Christ you are being illumined also into who you are as a creature and what your purposes are and what the purposes of all creatures and each other are. So until we have that, we only have hints of it in creation and distorted ones. We have a hints at what it means to be a human or to have an identity. But these hints are... Um, pieces, and until we have that 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 full picture, those pieces try to dominate, and they create a lot of the problems we see. You know, the sins of partiality, if you will, that my race or my gender or my this becomes the defining feature of myself. And so, when we do this, we create an idol, of course, but we try to exact meaning and the whole of meaning from a part that, that can't can't bear that burden. Right, and those parts are good. Mm. You know, but they're not the whole story. That's right. They're not Christ. <laughs> they're not Christ. Right, right. And, and this is where I think some of the, the um, evangelical way of presenting the gospel really fails. Um, 
we act as if forgiveness of sins was all that there is to salvation. Yes. When, yeah. when in point of fact, that's, that's just sort of a first step. That, that, that's, the, you know, that's only the beginning of it. That what salvation really points to is what the Eastern Orthodox talk about. It's theosis. It's what Paul talks about, about being in Christ. Um, it is where we find our identity in him, not in who we are in ourselves. So, you know, this idea of living authentically is antithetical to this because authentically means you're always looking to yourself. That's right. I'm, the, true, to, I'm the, true to me. Yeah. True to me. The, the real, the, for a Christian, that's, you know, that, that idea of authenticity that we talk about it makes no sense at all because who we really are is who we are in Christ and what we have to do is learn how to unpack that. Well, if, you, if, if we take it to its logical conclusion, authenticity is death. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You Take, know, taking, taking that little line from the 80s with the, you know, yeah. the homosexual movement, yeah. you know, like silence is death. No, authenticity is death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and you, you can actually um, make the argument that popularity for Christians to be popular is probably a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. friendship with the world is enmity with God. There you go. That's my life. Mm-hmm. I am like, <laughs> the most hated man in America. <laughs> yeah. Not actually, but yeah, um, <laughs> kind of yeah, close. I, 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 I think you come in second to Trump, but that, that's okay. Um, For some people. So, silver medal, that's okay. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, the, you know, the search, I would argue that there's nothing more irrelevant than a church that is looking to be relevant. But, uh, but the, the thing that, that, that completely blows the mind of the typical evangelical pastor. You can just kind of see the smoke coming out of his ears. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, yeah, well, uh, unfortunately. Well, but, but the, but the yeah. problem is what's going on under his or her hat. That's how you have to say it nowadays, don't you? <laughs> the typical evangelical leader. Under, no, wait, it's hat. I don't even know what you say anymore. I don't know what the pronoun there. is. I don't there. know what the problem what, is. What, it's what, there. What, what, what Which you, hat are we talking what, what you do is you, you turn it to a plural and make it That's there. Right. That way yeah. it's, it's um, still grammatically correct. <laughs> and so, I, but what's going, on, what's going on under them already is the embrace of a notion of meaning and history that are antithetical to the gospel. That's what's going on. And I think we have to, we, we have to recover and retrieve a bold... Um, intolerant, if you will, view of a proper understanding of Christian meaning and history that excludes these false views. We have to. You have to eventually get these views of history are heretical. They're view, built on a heretical understanding of God, a heretical understanding of creation, and a heretical understanding of the human being. Let's just not mince words. Aside from that, what's wrong with them? <laughs> That's right. But, That's but right. it is. Now, Wolfhard Pannenberg, of course, who I think also has a lot of Why heretical views. Why can't you be views. more winsome, Tom? <laughs> That's right. But one of the things he says, interestingly, in his book, uh, Anthropology and Theological Perspective, is that what, what happens in the shift from a, a fuller Christian vision, um, trying to be kind of renewed with the Reformation, is eventually, with, with these other threads and forces, is an alternative basis becomes the ground on which we in the church started to plant our doctrine. So rather than a Christian view of God, creation, history, meaning, 
Christ the Center and all that, we imported an alternative, but it's an alternative that has enough resemblance to the other because it happened in accretions that we barely noticed. Yeah, yeah. And so what we end up, his big question is, can you actually have an authentic Christianity when it is built on a basis of something that is fundamentally understood on its own terms as an antithesis to the Christian faith. You know, one of the things I've observed over the years is that the more sophisticated you are, the more stupid you can be. Yeah. You know, because there's a kind of artfulness to stupidity at, at certain points. And sometimes the crude, the uneducated, because they're just simply kind of the repository of what has been received from the past, speak the truth. Yeah. They don't under, maybe, maybe they don't even understand what they're saying. They're just saying... <laughs> But but but, they, but maybe they can just say, I know that's wrong. Yeah, that's just crazy over there. Or they'll say that's the truest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm thinking in particular of a situation. I, I remember back when I lived in Cambridge. This is back in the day. This is the '90s when Bill Hybels was all the rage. You talk to young people today about Bill Hybels, they have no clue what you're talking about. But there was a time when Bill Hybels was the Tim Keller of his day. Everybody wanted to be him. Before that, it was Robert Schuller. You know what I'm getting at. Yeah. There's always some guy who's got some megachurch that every pastor you know, sort of envies and says, I wish I was that guy. <laughs> anyway, uh, I thought we were supposed to say, I wish I was like Christ. But no, no, it's, I want to be like Bill Hybels. And so then you end up, these, we had all these guys who were just destroying churches. I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this. I, I saw churches destroyed, closed down, because some idiot pastor you know, decided that Bill Hybels was like the second coming of Christ, and everybody had to do this Hybels thing. Yeah, yeah. And I had a guy who was a you know convert late in life in our church in Cambridge, and uh, you remember uh, unchurched Harry and unchurched Sally? I think that was hmm. the language that Hybels used to describe people who didn't go to church. <laughs> and this guy in that church said, "What? You know, what is he talking about? He was talking marketing speech. That's what he was yeah, talking yeah. about. But Hybels was a marketer." And, and you're importing a market conception yes. of everything. Yep, and that's you're why... You're planting he, a doctrinal... You're trying to fit it into a marketing frame. That's right, and that's why, that's why uh, you know, his church uh, looked like you know, Conan O'Brien on a, on, a, on a night show. Now, the thing you need to note, though, is the date. Mm -hmm. It's the 90s. Yep. Now, when you take a look at American Christianity... Um, what you get is an overwhelmingly, starting in the early 20th century, liberal Protestantism takes over. Yep. Conservative Protestantism, also known as fundamentalism, kind of went underground, withdrew from culture, withdrew from universities, withdrew from all of those kinds of things. They had their own problems because basically they were post-enlightenment rationalists without knowing it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But... Then you get Billy Graham, you get a couple of other things happening, and when suddenly evangelicals come out of the woodwork, split from fundamentalists, mm -hmm. and then suddenly, starting in 1976, the year of the evangelical, That's right, Jimmy Carter. they become popular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once evangelicals become popular, they become addicted to popularity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everything that follows since then is, I would argue, evangelicals chasing after how do we stay popular. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. But where we are today is we see where it's led. Yeah. Right. You know, that but again, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You don't go for popularity. Yep. Yep. I'm and, with you. And, and I think the, <clears throat> the temptation to run with popularity already tells you that the, the foundation's given way. 
and, and I think that's kind of where I'm after. You have to have some, you, you have to have lost an assurance in something, and you have to be, you have to already be able to be able to move away from something you used to be certain of or you're not sure if you're certain of if you're going to run in these popular directions. Um, it, it, I mean, just think of it. Anything you're, you're, you're assured of is central to what you're about is something you don't compromise. Why, is all, why did all of these things become so easy to compromise? I mean, now look at the church. I mean, it's, it's pretty much found theological reasons to embrace almost everything the church has historically stood against. And now the historical church is considered to be, you know, uh, basically a, dark, uh, a product of the dark ages. And so, you know, again, here, we, here we're dealing with a kind of mindset, a consciousness that has been produced in, in the contemporary, you know, church that takes the contemporary um, as sort of, it, it, it's confusing the zeitgeist with the spirit of the ages. Yeah, well, you posted something, Glenn, that I thought was fascinating. It had to do with sort of like the surprising, um, I guess, uh, survival of, of genuine Christianity. And it used Roosh and it used Milo and it used mm. Jordan Peterson as examples of, of you know, men who have essentially been deplatformed and made into you know, persona non grata, put into the public pillory um, because of different reasons, and who have turned to Christianity, but not Hillsong, right. not Tim Keller's church, not <laughs> anything that could be described as remotely uh, um, respectable. They 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 bought into historic Christianity, right? Yeah. Not not a particular denomination yeah. or whatever. And someone like Milo, probably the most flamboyant, flaming, yeah, gay guy <laughs> out there. I met him. Who you know who has given all of that up? Who's yeah. left that behind? Yeah. In the name of following Christ. Well, we had you know his, you know his friend Rachel Fulton Brown on the show mm -hmm. yeah. some time back. And uh, I take, we should get her back on. Yeah, we yeah. should. We should. You know, it'd yeah. be good to get her thoughts on not just Milo, but just where she is at, at the moment. Yeah. But yeah. But there's that, that, that. There's again, what you're dealing with is is um, a sense in people who have already been immersed in the contemporary and embraced, you know, their their desires unchecked. Milo, for example. You have someone attracted to... Or Rouge. That's right. The world's most yeah. sort of renowned pickup artist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thousands of women. Yeah. But what, that's right. And what you have now is, is, is a rejection of that while the evangelical church is running to, to present itself as, as affirming and agreeable to all that. Please like us. Please like us. Don't be mad at us. Don't protest us. Don't burn us at the stake. Um, you know, it's this, don't make us martyrs for any truth. Um, now, there's a thought. Yeah. We, do, we need to get back to that martyrdom episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here again, you, this is what I mean. Think of the Christian vision of history to enter into a world in which they were a threat. You're talking usually people, I'm talking the earliest church, usually people that had very little power resources and connections. The, the man you most need to fear is the man with nothing to lose. That's right. And the one connected to the one who, who, who in his weakness, has, has overcome every worldly power. 
Um, the, you know, that, you know it's, it's that old saying, don't, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but the one who will damn your soul. I mean, that's the, that, right, that, right. That, uh, that whole line. But what you have here is, is, is a group who has seen the fullness of things. They have seen a great light. And so yeah, when they enter Milo into the... Milo is not yeah. going to take any of the nonsense. That's right. And you, you, Roosh is not going to take any of the nonsense. And see, it's that light that we've put under the bush. That's, it's that light that is, is inextinguishable, but we try to eclipse it and soften it and dampen it. And, and the thing is, is that that's the very set of riches. I always tell my students, that what is it we have that no one else has? If we have something that everyone else has, they're usually going to have it better. That's right. That's right. You know, we, what, do we, what do we specialize in? Really bad rock and roll. Yeah. Bad clothing, <laughs> bad stuff. I mean, we're the followers is, is, you know, in, in so many ways. But here, when you have something that would be the, you know, to, to where Nietzsche was envious of it. To, he had to create something at, to, to kind of count, you know, to antichrist, if you will, to try to rival it. Or someone who, who said, you know, how can I buy that? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's that, that kind of, that, that thing that people who have nothing in terms of this worldly power or identity or wealth, and yet they have something inextinguishable, um, that is that pearl of great price. And that is, this, that is the something that we as the church have been called to carry forth. And it is illuminative because it exposes all of the, the, the limits of worldly power and the question mark placed over all authorities that have been dismantled in Christ. So Christ's lordship, which is the heart of the confession of Christian history, is a political threat to the world because it shows that its trends, its fashions, and everything else have been judged and found to be inconsistent with the kingdom and the gospel. And so, so, so you're dealing with a history of meaning that is, is, as Augustine will say, caught up in this dynamics of battle. And yet, in the midst of that battle, Christianity is the only one, when it is aligned and ordered the right way, connected to the peace of all things, which is its destiny. So you can be in this battle, but be, be in Christ in the midst of it. And so you can be in that meaning center and, and, and that fulfillment, even in, in these challenges of time. The world's not that way. You threaten its fra fragile identity. And all of its wrath comes on you because you, you, I mean, just think if you do a microaggression now, what? You're threatening the, the yeah, frail right. identity right. of right. something that can't be sustained unless, unless that microaggression be tamed. Well, and, and that everybody has to go along. And anybody who doesn't go along is persona non grata, deplatformed, whatever. That's right. That's canceled. right. We have a cancel culture in the church. Yeah. And some of the people that are the best known, sort of most celebrated sort of personalities mm -hmm. in evangelicalism are, have no problem canceling people. That's right. That's right. And, I mean, that's a, it's tied very much to self-righteousness. I mean, you see that with the whole virtue signaling, right? Yep. yep. Wash, yep. you know, I'm aligned on the right side of history. Right so my, side my inner, of history. My inner sanctum is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the only right side of history is Christ's in that's the a, end. But, that's it. That's right. But, you know, what's interesting here, Tom, one of the things that, that occurred to me as you were talking there about the fact that we can be in the middle of the battle now, but somehow we're still in Christ. You might recall when we did the show on Athanasius on the Incarnation, Yep. he pointed out <laughs> that while Jesus was on earth, he was still the Logos that, in whom all things held together. Yeah. He was still the one 
who was holding the entire universe together, even as he was here as a human being. Yeah, yeah. And you know that that provides sort of a, I think, in a a pretty wild picture of what you're talking about for us in a small way. Yeah. That we are simultaneously here and there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And and they, they, I think that Augustinian vision, and then what you have that you know the two cities that are kind of growing up side by side are determined by the different loves, right? Mm-hmm. One who, who's God centered love and the life ordered that way. There, that's where peaceableness flourishes, and humans come into right. their participation in the fulfillment of what they're created to be. And yet, in creation, flourishes in even in a temporal sense because we are we are positioning ourselves properly as those cultivating the garden the right way, right? right, right. Um, this is why creation groans until the children of God come and, and actually are ordered the right way, right? right, right. Um, and, and then, but then you have the, the self-centered city um, in which the state for Augustine is not governed strictly by the self-centered city. As a matter of fact, it is connected to God love in a way. It's a limiting of, of, of unrighteousness and ungodliness and it's a bringing about a kind of temporal form of peace even if it has to use um, instruments that are under the conditions of a not yet fully culminated eschatology. Of, In other words, the army. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or the police force. The right? police. That's right. Um, you, yeah. And so, and so there, there's a whole different vision there. But uh, if we, how in the world do we get from this vision to to the kind of flood? of uh, fluidity <laughs> that we, we kind of encounter in the world and in the church today. I mean, there's a lot of steps, um, but I want to highlight a few. Um, and one would be, if I can get the name right, uh, I'm not... If it's just, German, it doesn't matter. That's right. This is Italian, though. Um, oh, Guillaume Battista Vico, is that, that right? Sounds, it, Vico, so long Vico, as you sound confident. Um, you, you six, got, yeah, that, that's one of the things I learned reading scripture. Just sound confident. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. You know, but, when you come across a name, just sound confident and everybody goes along. It was, it was uh, humorous because when I went over to Oxford, everything I said had a Virginia slang to it. <laughs> so when I said Isaiah, oh, the, the, the cringes that I would get when uh, reading the text in. in well, what, what you needed to do, yeah, yeah. What, what you needed to do with those guys is say, you know, Virginia dialect is much closer to Hebrew. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Than, that's than, right. than this effect, affectation that you guys uh, you know have over here. That's right. That's right. Um, so uh, Guillaume Batista of uh, Vico, I guess. Um, John Batista. Yep. That's right. John the Baptist. We'll call him that for now. 1688, yeah. 1744. I mean, if English was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, so he's uh, Italy's greatest philosopher, some will say, but he is probably one of the founders of philosophy of history as the modern world has come to know it. Um, and uh, he was before Herder, before Kant, before Hegel, but all of them. Oh, before the Antichrist. Before the time. Antichrist. <laughs> but one of the things, I'm only going to pick up one thing uh, from him that I, I find of in- interest. And this is, this is something we still see today, oddly. And it's um, chron- something Lewis will call chronological snobbery. Um, and so it's this, this notion that we kind of uh, stand at a point in time in which um, we shouldn't second-guess ourselves. What we should do is almost stand as a judge over the past yeah. from almost a point of superiority. Now, that's how I measure it, the idiocy of a person. That's right. And, and to give uh, John the Baptist here um, some, uh, 
some uh, little credit. He was dealing with a time where there were a lot of ignorant people around him who didn't know anything of history, so he, uh, he was probably arguing more against them than 2019 anything. 2019, you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. He, he can come back. But anyway, he, you would know his works from uh, Croce and Collingwood. I mean, they're outgrowths of, of his idealist view of history. Um, but one of the things that he really develops... Um, uh, um, Ronald Nash in his little book, The Meaning of History, which I'm kind of drawing over here, he's talking about the way he has a kind of spiral view of history. It's, it's something that holds to both cycles and linear, if you will. Um, but one of the things that, that he, he uh, emphasized, he's got these kind of, his, he warns historians about a number of prejudices that could diminish the quality of their work. Now, these are not um, the ones that you would get, you know, from Gadamer right, because we all have biases, the deal is, is to be, the fuse our horizons and wean off our bad biases. No, these are prejudices. Um, number one, the error of exaggerating the wealth, power, and grandeur of the period of history you're studying. Oh, In other words, there's a little bit, I understand his point, but there's a tiny bit, and, and, and maybe at this time there was a, a, glor, a glamorization of a particular period of history. Yeah. But, but one of the things he's trying to do is kind of level history to, to, to a, a, our measure in a way. Um, we need to, the conceit that many historians have of the past that their own nation, um, in the practice of describing history, is one's own nation viewed as favorably as possible. I get that. I mean, we can tend sure. to think of that that you could think of your own opinion that way, but he doesn't seem strictly to go there, because three, the prejudice of thinking that the people historians study were as learned and cultured as they. Huh. So for him, it's, it's exactly opposite of what we're talking about with the, the guild and, and craftsmanship of the past. Right. We should, you know, probably be under the assumption that, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't necessarily our equals. And that is true. Maybe they aren't. And maybe there was an assumption that they always were. But at least in this case, he's you're starting to show a little yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, historical context will really help make sense of this, but we'll talk about it when you get to yeah, the Yeah, that's rest. right. Um, the other one's the fallacy of thinking and that simply because two nations share a similar idea or institution, one must have borrowed it from the other. I, 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 I tend to agree with, with that notion. Yeah, but, Lewis uh, yeah. talks about that. Mm -hmm. And then the error of thinking that people in the past knew more about their own time than you do. See, that was the one that caught me. Yeah. Um, and I understand what they're saying. You don't see, they don't get to see what, what consequences come from their action. Right. But you can see how, without the context, these principles can, can start to move themselves towards something that you actually begin to get in the Enlightenment, both uh, with Kant and also the, the romantic reaction. Um, and this is there, this, is this sense... Um, this, this sense you see over and over again, especially with the Enlightenment, that we kind of are at a point of enlightenment yeah, sure. in which we... Has there ever been a time in history where people like twisted more in, into a greater contortion to pat themselves on the back than to call yourself you know, enlightenment? And, and if you think the term even woke is a, is a variation, enlightenment, yeah. you're awakened, you're woke, right? right, right. You're, you're awakened. But at least with woke, it's become kind of... Uh, pejorative, you know, for many people uh, anyway. You know, your yeah. woke well, is almost like an insult. Yeah. yeah, what's interesting is that Vico here is himself reacting against the intellectual trends that came before him. I, identifying him as an early Enlightenment figure I think is exactly right. But when you, when you look at the Renaissance and medieval thought, they, they had a number of epistemological assumptions that they made 
that ultimately led them to conclude that that the past was the best guide to the truth. Yeah. You would find the truth by looking to the past and further that the further in the past that you went, the better off you were. Mm. Because yeah. they believed in this idea called the decay of nature. Everything yeah, in nature right. tends to break down and decay. That includes human culture and human knowledge. So if you can get back to the absolute earliest origin of something, you have the truth. Yeah, you actually see that in Tolkien's you know, mythos, yes. you know, his legendarium. Right? Well, and there's an interesting thing here. One is um, this notion of um, paradise lost, if you mm-hmm. will. Right, right. Um, and so the, the, that was the, the prime and the primal. And that was the exemplar for everything else. So everything after that is, everything after that's in a sense a decline. And so one of the things, one of the things that gets introduced in there is that it is from Christianity in a sense that though there is that that happened, you also have something new has entered, and now things are are being renewed and being brought to their completion. So you get that here in one sense. But what starts to happen is he, he develops this whole reading of history that goes the other way around. Basically, the past was but a bunch of primitives, right. no-nothings, there was no golden age, and we tend to be on the, we're the age of, of the reasons of, of men. So he, he has the age of the gods, the age of the heroes, the age of men. Um, emphasis on sensation with the age of the gods. Uh, human nature is fierce and cruel, it's barbaric, it's theocentric. Um, humans subordinate to deity. Um, the age of the heroes, emphasis on imagination, human nature is noble and proud, government, warrior, aristocracy, and then some humans subordinate to others. Finally, the age of men, emphasis on reason, human nature is benign and reasonable, government, democracy, and all humans equal to each other. So it's from this, this place where we arrive that becomes kind of the, the uh, center key, the measure of, of the significance of history and, and reading for him. Um, and so... So, ultimately, what we've got is not an A.D.B.C. distinction. Yeah. Uh, instead of B.C., it becomes before me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, well, I, I, yeah. I, I, think, I think am... About, think about the, the letters. B.M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, what, what, what this is saying is that the, the, pre- the present is really the turning point in history. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's right. And so yeah, that, that's what, and that was, um, again, I'm, I'm looking at how do we get to a place where pre- the contemporary, the present, becomes the measure of the significance of the past. Um, look at Wheaton College getting rid of Jim Elliott's statue, right? They um, did that? Yes, they removed his, the statue to him because it was offensive to the indigenous. How long ago was that? It's recent. I just, wow. I read about it past couple months. Man. So just, I mean, I just want you to think about what's going on here. Where we are in a state of consciousness is superior to... We've got to learn how to defend people. But see, this is, there's a notion of history that, that has kind of crept in, even though there, there's a lot of other fl- ideas of history floating, and we still have this kind of moral superiority that is a hangover from, from the, some of the extremes that grew out of these shifts. Yeah, right. um, so one of the things you go back, um, all the way back to early, the early church, you have Irenaeus, who... Um, was known for his view that basically you never had a golden age of, of perfect uh, human creatures and creation to which things broke away. But really the whole process of history is growth. Yeah. So we start at childhood and we're, we're made an image and likeness. These are two different things. Um, and, and so we're basically growing into the image uh, that we have. We haven't been given an image that is continuous so much as 
in the pro they're becoming towards what we're created to be. Now, Irenaeus was what, much more nuanced than that. Um, but the way that, for example, uh, medieval church and the Reformation dealt with it is that you did have in history a, a creation that was good and was, um, was the, the human being was made in the image of God, which was made for communion with God, could communion with God, and then also was called to the likeness of God. But in this original state, you have this original justice, which is that grace to be in communion with God, and then our image being able to be in that communion. Well, what happens is with the fall, that gets, that gets broken for, for, for the medieval Catholic church. And so the original justice is gone, but we don't cease to have an image of God. We still have reason, we still have things, we're still made for communion, we're just broken. Now, Luther was not a fan of this distinction, so he, he in the Reformation tended to side with, we lost everything, the image of God itself is is, is lost, lost and, you know, we do have a seed of religion, but it's nothing more than an idol-making factory and, and, mm -hmm. and, and the like. Um, but what ends up happening when we, get, when we start to make these shifts in history is we move away from the Reformation and the classical Christian tradition. The one of the first things that goes is that there was any real paradisal historical right. Adam. Okay, right. Darwin's not here yet, but in a sense, there is a mythical start to, to the human being. And so the human being is made in the image of God and there is kind of a fall, but it's pre-historical, if you will, a saga. So let's, let's think about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. what, what, what time period are we talking about here? Um, I would say this is starting to slip in around 16, 17, 1800s. These, these okay, so we're well seeing, before Darwin. You're already seeing this in things like this moving in the 1600s. Yeah, so... And the, the, actually, it's got some precursors not, that don't go quite that far, but some of the basic precursors you can even see in the late 16th century. So... I think this is important for folks out in podcast land to get, because I think most of those folks assume it's the 19th century and Darwin that brought yep. about yep. this shift. Yep. And, and what you're telling me is that there's something fundamental that happened before that. You didn't need Darwin's origin of species That's right. to do that. That's right. And so what happens is... Yeah, and, and if, I, if I can just throw something in quickly, oddly enough, the... Um, uh, some of the places where this shows up in, in sort of a backhanded way are in arguments over the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Huh. Yeah. The idea is that if you, can, if you can get rid of the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, you actually undermine Jesus' authority and everything else because he's the one right. who said Moses wrote it. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, that's right. And you have this relation to the past that is not, like, again, like the classical world or like, you know, think of Eastern Orthodoxy. What, what did the fathers say? Yeah. Here now, the fathers are all would be looked at suspiciously. Yeah. They're a bunch of ignoramuses. We know better and we can judge them from our, whether they had anything to say or not. I'm not saying again, uh, Vicho held this view, but what I'm saying is this kind of, this was planted so that it could, it could, it could, um, right kind of take root in, in certain mindsets. And so one, one of the things you have shift as the, the historical image of God no longer becomes historical but tends to be pushed all the way up into the metaphysical is therefore they have to do something with what in the world does make human beings unique. Um, while there's still a Christian thread, thread, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? As Christianity is losing its grip, it means what makes human beings unique in relationship to animals or everything else. So these debates are going on in the West, where, depending on where you're located. And so it becomes understood to be dynamic. It is not something human beings have as a kind, like I'm always stressing, a 
Christian view of things has history, but we have ordained natures. They are, they are unfolding towards their fulfillment, but there is a distinct nature to be a human. Um, here, there is, there is an image of God, but that image of God is not something we ever have at any particular moment. Um, whether one attributes that we lost it to the fall or it was a, it's a metaphysical thing about the human, but it's not historical. So the only place for it to become historical is it through this process of history, becoming. So I don't have an essence. I'm all becoming. I'm fluid. Things in history don't have essences. They're fluid, and they're based on what they are at that given moment in time. Well, with Irenaeus's influence, the, history is, is something about immaturity, childhood, growing to adolescence, to young adulthood, to maturity. So, so that implies to me there's some kind of form yeah. that you're growing into. You're growing into, but see, if you notice here is you don't, you don't have, you don't have a, a nature to which you've fallen from and therefore yeah, gotcha. is going to be renewed and then brought to its completion. Right. You really don't have anything but an inchoate form. So and you're saying history it's, you're is saying about... It, are you saying that Irenaeus is some, somewhat to uh, he, blame for this? He had enough in place to allow for those kind of theories to develop later gotcha. from that kind of influence. I don't know he, that he was directly read for this, but I keep seeing his name show up in relationship to... Well, you know, this I think is important ideas. for us yeah. to consider because, you know, you can have people say things like, well, you know, he never said that. Yeah. And then that, then that kind of gives that person a pass. Yes, yeah. Whereas what you're saying is, the trajectory is yeah. set. Yeah. Now, he may never have said it, and yeah. he may have recoiled from the uh, sort of logical yeah. implications of what he said, said, but this is the where we're going with this. This is where we're going. So he becomes attractive to people who are trying to make sense of an image of God or something unique about humans, but have a new view of history as process going on. And this process or organic unfolding of, of history towards a completion. Now, there's something Christian there. Now, now let me, let me, again, mm -hmm. let me introduce you, or interrupt you, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Tom, but um, it seems to me that, that what's lacking here, not as, or sort of been eclipsed, is transcendence. Yes. So, genuine transcendence, in, the, in yep. the sense that we've talked about many times in the show, means transcendence not, over, not only over the physical world, but necessarily because it's also time. Yes. You know, time, you know, we should at least know enough Einstein yeah. to know. You can't yeah. have materi materiality without time. So it's, they're bound up together. That's right. And I, and I think the, the, the transcendence is what classically grounded the universals, which, which, not Plato's universals, but Christians. They are contingent. They are creations, but they are real kinds. Okay, this is an important distinction you just made. So you yeah. were talking about the forms. You're talking about kinds. You're talking about things. But the difference between the Christian understanding is they're created. Versus a, a Platonic understanding, which it's is that they're forms. eternal. That's, that's right. right. And so, a lot of times, people in yeah, the Reformed right. world will, you yeah. know, mount their high horse and yeah. charge after Plato right. because they accuse that's him right. of, you know, or any Christian who's, who says something that's remotely right. similar, because they'll say, "Oh, you're creating another eternal thing." Yeah. Or you're, you're saying we're, there's another true thing. What we're talking about is general kinds, yeah. general forms, yeah. which are yeah. ordained in Genesis. That's a general form. That's, right. I mean, it's right. hard to get away from that. Be right. fruitful among. This is, and then this, this is not disconnected to what Glenn was just saying, te teleology. These two go together. Mm -hmm. What changes is this new shift is you have teleology without any general forms. Mm. So you have nominalism that, that so nothing... Let's, let's stop and mm -hmm. think about that a second because yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah. 
Teleology without forms yeah. means what? It means that basically uh, we're, or the, as the agents, completely open to whatever we want to make ourselves. Open-ended evolution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. open-ended evolution. That's right. And, and think, of, think of the language you hear. I mean, you re- I remember during the... Obama trying to uh, run for higher office. I mean, what is your views on gay marriage? Well, my views are evolving. Yeah, right, right, right. 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 Well, how, how would you say that? No, there isn't a fixed understanding of, of marriage that is normative through, throughout. There's no essence that is normative, even if it, there has fulfillment and it, it, there's elements of being done away. What we have is something that is, is um, changing. Yeah, which is, a, which is a, just a marvelous way to sort of... Cr- be a, a, a you know quizzling you know just kind of like yeah. evade the question yeah. uh, you know we're not ready for that that's you right. know sometimes I've we, heard we, that we have argument. not well that's it so I'm not opposed to it but once the zeitgeist is ready for it, I'll be ready for it. I'll yeah, be on the right. rights I'll be aligned with that's the right. historical that's what, so moment that's why yeah. you know when you catch these people in contradictions yeah. it doesn't seem to make it yeah. you know any it does you can't get any headway with that's those right. contradictions you can't you can't say that they're, they're illegitimate or those, those people have lied or whatever. That's Just right. Like, because obviously the, in that moment of time that was true now this is true. That kind That's of thing. right. And think of it with male and female. Yep. Right? Yep. These are, uh, are given. These are good. These are for certain ends. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, those things were, are ju- that's just kind of a mythical time, mm-hmm. not binding on the forms of the creaturely, and therefore have no significance for the historical. The historicals, you, those things can change right. as history changes, because history is just, it's, it's driving towards something, that's their, that's their teleology. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're, you know, we'll get to Hegel later. But, but the point here is just that you, you're losing universals, you're using, losing general kinds, and you're creating a, a set of evolutionary and developmental understandings of meaning and history that are continuously in, in flux and change. And so you, you can't have any permanent things... And you can't have anything that kind of has a strong sense of continuity as it moves towards its fulfillment in Christ. And this is exactly what we, you know, the gospel is very different than that. Um, I know there are verses that use, you know, there is no, go ahead. Before you go there, Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about the connection between form and teleology. Mm. It seems to me that you have your choice. You can either have no forms and a teleology that is open-ended and that doesn't have any direction, it just sort of goes somewhere. Or you have forms mm-hmm. with the potential for a directed teleology. Mm-hmm. The weird thing is what we've got right now is no forms but a directed teleology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right Rooted, so, sort of just an arbitrary right, will. Mm-hmm. Right side of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 you know, that, that very notion makes no sense unless there is some kind of form that history is growing into or conforming to. That's, that's right. And, and one of the things you get, I mean, you even see it with, I mean, John Milbank and in Christian circles, um, Dave Bentley Hart, he's got a new book coming out on, they're all writing on eschatology and apocalypse now. But I one wonder of the things, why. Yeah. But one <laughs> of the things they do is they want to maintain a certain classical Christian vision, but they have bought into this, this notion that we don't have any kind of, of kinds other than the eschatol, the, the, other than what we are at the end. Yeah. And so there is this poetic sense in which they will allow for the creative, poetic, expressive self, if you will. So let's, let's stop and let me, let me just sort of uh, digest this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say that the only form is the end, yeah. you're implying that there was no form in the beginning. 
That's, that's, or if there was a form, it was not something that is, is a historically given, but it's somehow, a, it's your metaphysical given. In other words, this is what you're metaphysically going to, to move towards. It, it, you know, there, there, there are no trees, there are only seeds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and so, there, yeah, and even that, even that, I mean, there is, there is no kinds that are continuous, they're all contingent to the point that this, the, the different contingencies you're around constantly change them. Mm-hmm. Everything, no, there is no stable nature at all, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, any continuity, um, I mean, everything in a sense is in, in that changing flux. So, so um, yeah, when you, you, you talk about the word um, religion, well, there is no such essence to religion. There isn't even a functional essence. It's really what did religious mean within the power order, orders of a given moment. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, so it, its essence is only tied to that. And so if there is any continuity, um, it, it's, it's arbitrary. It's yeah. just, it's, it's all contingent. And so, but they want to still hold that this is going towards some teleology. So... So they tend to um, basically see cr- creation as just expressive of its, yeah, look, of, it, of of a non-given form. So let's kind of bring this into the experience of some of our listeners. So yeah. I was at the PCA General Assembly, and there was a fellow that got up and made this comment, this, this statement. Yeah. Apparently, he's trying to plant a church out in Colorado somewhere in some <laughs> very progressive community. Because he's in a progressive community, he has to sort of dress up. Christianity and progressive clothing because he said context is king context I said you know as moment he said that as I said no context is not king now how do we get to I mean who I mean we there's a lot of other figures but one of the key figures that brought context is king is something we also have talked about in other shows is historicism was yep. was um Johann um, Gottfried Herder 1744-1803 He's the founder of historicism. He was reacting against Kant, the individual, and the rational as being kind of the forefront, um, and he was a romantic. And so one of the things that he, he wrote a famous uh, book called Ideas Toward a Philosophy of History of Man. I mean, think these people really took, took this stuff seriously. That's why we're still impacted by it. Um, but one of the things, he counters the Enlightenment by insisting that the human striving we find in history is largely unconscious and non-rational. Um, it's not, as Kant thought, a product of conscious thought uh, and plans. On the contrary, humankind in different places and different times develops its own way without conforming to rational expectation. It's a product of its context. The contingencies of the moment determine everything. The Enlightenment tended to treat the past with a contempt um, befitting with which it believed to be barbaric and enlightened. Herder didn't. He said, you have to understand everything in the past in light of its own consciousness. But his, his problem was he made that everything, context, yeah. everything. You have now no kinds, yeah, no right. essences, no, nothing. You just have, um, it, it's almost a, a, a form of, of nominalism in which you don't, you have conventions. Right. This reminds me a little bit of Owen Barfield. Are you familiar with his poetic diction? Yeah. yeah. And some of his stuff there. Well, the 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 poet, uh, the, anyone influenced by the Romantics would have been influenced some at some point by Herder. But his big thing, I think, where we see today is his notions that emphasize the primary reality of the group. Mm. Um, das Volk. He was very instrumental in setting the conditions for Hitler in nationalism. Yeah, and the Volkswagen. Vol- that's right. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so the group is the, the means car. of individual development, and most important type of group is the nation. 
Um, and he didn't, he, he didn't have the kind of idealistic view that human beings could self-realize themselves um, through their own rational powers. He had a kind of, he did adopt some of the grimmer, um, almost a, a naturalistic Augustinianism in, 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 in the sense that you did have in every time in society um, elements that were very dark and, and the like. But, but one of the things that was central to him was context and um, group and the non-rational. I think this is completely swallowed up the evangelical world. It has, it has. And it's, it's, I remember going to uh, AAR some years back when I cared to go, and I remember one of uh, a colleague of mine getting up and said, okay, well, we're all contextualists now. Yeah, right. And right. so, I mean, the point was, is, is no one whatsoever pushed back. And yeah, I think yeah. in the church, we're all contextualists, which we're all, you know, and this is really the relativization. I know for a fact that uh, you, can, you can say that's true of, of Wheaton, and okay. you can see it, its effect in one of the college's really heroic, at least for, you know, you know since his death, you know, with Jim Elliott, yeah. you know, uh, they, they're embarrassed by him now. Well, and this is what's interesting because... For Herder, you shouldn't be embarrassed by him because you needed to understand Jim Elliot in light of his time. And, mm -hmm. his, and I think there's a fairness to that. Yeah. Before you go judging the moment, you need to at least understand what they were, you know, what's going on there. I mean, that's... But what you get is this strange wedding of v Vico and this superiority of our present. Again, I'm not saying Vico held that, but I'm just talking the outgrowth, the chronological snobbery on one end, right. moral superiority tied to Herder's kind of relativism and contextualism, yeah. which is odd because you have moralized an absolute from a particular context and from a particular determination, and you're, you're sitting here basically reading all of these past episodes or how they don't conform to your present moment, which they shouldn't if Herder is correct. Yeah, there's a, obviously a <laughs> there's kind of obvious, that. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, this is where, this is where we, we, we're sort of seeing the, a strange combination of different threads of history that are contradictory yeah. um, turning into a kind of monstrous um, moment in yeah. which, the, the, you, you know, let's just be crass, we rape the past with our present. Well, well and go ahead, I, I, I think as a historian, my suspicion is you're giving people way too much credit about thinking, for thinking about the past. Yeah. You know, I think what, what's, what's happening is that people take their present set of values as being the absolute in a weird way, these evolving values that are constantly changing are absolutes. Yeah. And as a result, anything that doesn't conform with it, we need to get rid of, yeah, which, is, which amounts to being not even historicism, but another rejection of the past. Yeah, I, this is a good point to start to kind of bring the plane in for a landing. We've reached the end of our flight. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you're, you're itching to well, respond well, to I that. Well, I think on that point um, is, is exactly that. It's that we have come to take our present consciousness as sort of being the apex from which we read everything else. So this is a bias and a prejudice that is itself contingent in the process of a particular history. It is not something you get from Christianity. I think Augustine is much closer reading, reading history and, and all of its warts and its providence and continuity and its aim towards uh, fulfillment of things where here we are, we are importing things that are fundamentally at odds with, with core Christianity, but that's one. That somehow we have eternalized in our present moment that we are at the 
apex of consciousness in terms of ethics and morality. We're, we're superior. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and this is my final thought on this, that uh, if, you, if you lose a personal God who is uh, the Lord of history, then, you know, you, you know, resort to these sorts of things, these maneuvers, and, you know, and this is what you, what you find is that it's unreasonable and it doesn't really hold together if you think about it at all. That's, and, and in the context of, of Christianity and evangelicalism in particular, you create the particular canon within the canon that you emphasize that corresponds with your particular set of prejudices and ideas drawn from the present moment. So I'm a her, 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 heretic, but in a larger sense I'm not, I guess. I, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. well, no. So, so the, the entire gospel is love your neighbor and judge not. Right. Yeah, we can ignore pretty much everything else. Those are the yeah. only things that matter. And if you want to exegete the other things, you're just showing the, your ignorance and the fact that you don't really get what Christianity is about. Yeah, I've, I've been accused of that. And we need, really, really do need to wrap it up. Yeah. So last thought, Tom, I'll give it to you. Although, yeah, on the last point is with Glenn, and although in this fluid context, love and neighbor and everything else have no real meaning. Exactly. <laughs> so we yes. can end it. Well, that, there you go. There's a high note to end on. All right. Well, we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. Thank you for listening and getting all the way to the end of the episode. If you would give us a uh, five-star rating, uh, if you're on uh, iTunes, that would be really great, and we would be happy to see that. If uh, you listen on another platform, there's probably another thing you can do there. You know, three buckets, ten, you know, I don't know, uh, whatever. (laughs) But um, we we, we are glad for for your interest and your support. Anyway, that's enough for now. I'm getting incoherent. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye now.